For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know, we're in a section of Romans that uh, deals with an aspect of God's character that uh, makes us uncomfortable, whether you're a Christian or not. You know, when I speak about God's love, everybody is smiles and relaxes and giggles, but when we come to God's wrath, the mood in the room very quickly changes and there's a tension that arises. Yet Paul brings up God's wrath right on the heels of these very important verses, verses 16 and 17, which proclaim the beauty of the gospel. And him doing this is intentional. He has said that he is compelled, he's obligated, he's indebted to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is this? Because the gospel is God's good declaration to us that through Jesus Christ we can receive by faith the actual righteousness and power of God. So he's obligated to preach this. And why do we need this so much? That's where verse 18 comes into play, right? For the wrath of God. And now the room changes. Well, we love that talk about the gospel and all that comes with the gospel. But when we get to the why, why do we need the gospel? Verse 18, it's like a, a pail of cold water. For the wrath of God. I mean, Jonathan just referred to it. These verses, verses 18 to 32, they are heavy verses. By the time you get done reading this passage of Scripture, it's like, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Apart from the gospel, all of humanity, especially the Gentile nations, Paul writes, are under the wrath of God. And last week, we looked at what the wrath of God is and what it is not. Right? It is not God flying off the handle, losing control, you know, getting hot under the collar and becoming vindictive and, and petty. What it is, is God's strong, righteous indignation directed at sin with a focus towards retribution and even judgment. John Murray has written that wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being. So this gets to the core of who God is against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Wrath is tied to his holiness, his righteousness, his love. And what we saw last week, that God has he's revealed himself to all of humanity through general revelation. And so humanity is without excuse. Through creation and the general revelation of creation, we can know certain things and understand certain aspects about God, his personality and his attributes, so much so that we can understand that he exists and ask important questions and, and begin to be aware of him and perceive him. And yet humanity's response is to rebel, to reject him. And so as a result, God is revealing his wrath to humanity. The tense of that word in verse 18 is important. It, it kind of reads past tense, but it's, it's present tense. You know, last week we really focused on the what of God's wrath, seeing what it is and is not and how it reveals God's holiness and His righteousness and His love. This morning I want us to dig into the how. How is He revealing it right now? It's something that is being revealed to us right now, not just in the past or in the future, but as we sit in this modern-day America, God is revealing His wrath. But before we get to the how, I want to close a loop on why. I talked a lot about the why last week, about rebellion and how man suppresses the truth. But if we really get down to the nub of why is God revealing his wrath, you can sum it up in one word, idolatry. The the faults, our faults, idolatrous worship is the catalyst for God's wrath. Idolatry is the why. Humanity has exchanged the worship and the service and the truth of our Creator for idolatry. In a few moments, we're going to go through a a bunch of different sins, and we're going to get into some details, and we're going to talk about some things. But before we do that, we have to understand something, church, that the sin beneath all the other sins mentioned in chapter 1 is idolatry. We've got to understand what idolatry is. Uh, Just recently, uh, Catherine brought into our home a discipleship tool that we're using for our son, MJ. 
Uh, Jonathan mentioned a book, and I hope you'll look at that book. We need these types of things. What, what Catherine found for us is, is a, a, the New City Catechism on a flip chart that is kind of appropriate for where our son is at, at his, at his uh, level of abilities. And it's for children and young, young adolescents. And so it's on our dining room table. And if you don't know what a catechism is, catechisms go all the way back to the early church. It's how people were taught the truth of God's Word. You didn't have the Bible able to everybody to have their own copy, and most people didn't even read for that matter. And so uh, you learn questions and answers about the Scriptures, and you memorize the questions, and you memorize the answers, and then by the time you were done, you were considered, you know, grounded in the faith. And so we've been going uh, through the new city, and actually he's enjoying asking me the questions to see if I don't know the answers or not. So far, I'm, I'm doing okay, right? But one of the questions of the New City Catechism is, what is idolatry? So we're going to do this together. I'm going to ask the question. You're going to read the answer, because that's the way it works, okay? So here's the question from the New City Catechism. What is idolatry? Read it out loud. Good job. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. I want you to tuck that definition away and remember it as we work our way through this passage. It's important that we understand what idolatry is. It is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness significance and security. Paul points out in this passage that for idolatry to take place, there are a couple of exchanges that are associated with idolatry. In verse 23, we exchange something that is of eternal worth for something that is of a counterfeit of of glory or a counterfeit worth. We exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the the glory of of or a false glory of of an invention of corruptible men. And we exchange the truth of God for a lie. In doing so, we exchange the worship of the creator for the worship of creation. We, we see, actually, you know, what Paul is doing in this passage of Scripture is he's, he's kind of taking us all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 3, through 3. We see this very pattern of exchange, exchanging the glory of God for the, that is incorruptible for the inglorious, corruptible things of creation and man, and exchanging the lies of man and creation for the truth of God and vice versa. We see this pattern all the way back in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God and communion and fellowship with God for a counterfeit glory that could not bring them the satisfaction and the comfort and peace and hope that they were looking for. Why do we make these exchanges? Why do we do these things? In short, it's because we were created to worship. God's created us to worship, and if we aren't going to worship God, then we must worship something other than God. But we will worship, because this is the way we're created. Tim Keller writes this. He says, we are telic creatures. 
Uh, we're purposed people. That's what telic kind of means. We have to live for something. We are telic creatures. There has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes and which we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it, and so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything that we do. And Keller goes on to talk about how oftentimes what we worship are good things, things that under normal circumstances are gifts from God, meant to sustain us and uphold us. And then he concludes with this very astute observation. He says, the human heart loves to make a good thing into its God thing. The human heart loves to make a good thing into its God thing. So to this pattern of idolatry, God responds with wrath. And his wrath is more than, the, say, the punishment that can come our way by the governing authorities when our idolatry results in the breaking of human law and human statutes. And his wrath is also more than the final judgment that will come when he divides out the, his people from the rest of humanity for eternal separation. The wrath that he is talking about right here in this passage is a present reality. So what is it? How is it expressed? Well, you'll be surprised to know that in verse 24, Paul's answer to how God is revealing his wrath, it really takes us by surprise. What he essentially says is that God is revealing his wrath by giving humanity exactly what we want. That's, that's something. How does he reveal his right? He gives us what we want. He, he says in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And the, the, the point behind all of this uh, giving us up, giving humanity up is he's giving the idolaters what they actually think they want. One of the, uh, I forget who, even before G, one of the ancient Greek philosophers used to say, beware when the gods give humans what they pray for. And there's a similar idea here. With each of these usages of God gave them up, uh, I want to I kind of link a phrase to it, because what Paul does is he's giving examples of how God is revealing his wrath and giving us what we want in giving us up to that. So I want to give you three phrases that will help us to understand how he's revealing his wrath today by giving humanity what we want. The first phrase is associated with verse 24. He's giving us up, he's revealing his wrath, and by giving us up, he's giving us up to lustful hearts that lead to slavery. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
Lust is the Greek word uh, epithumia. In some contexts, it's a perfectly fine word. It refers to a, maybe a longing, a desire, like, like a husband and a wife have a desire for each other, or, or the Lord Jesus longs to see us, embrace him. And so in some contexts, epithumia has a very positive connotation or, or a neutral connotation, but many times it's negative, and it's certainly that's the case here. The context here, it's negative, it's sinful. It means an over-desire. A, a desire that's out of control, a longing for something that ultimately leads to enslavement and the dishonoring of the body. In this verse, Paul is using the example of sexual immorality. Uh, and, and it's kind of fitting. Remember, he's writing from the city of Corinth to the people who are in the city of Rome. And in the city of Corinth, there was a temple filled with idol worship. Idolatry was everywhere. And just one of the temple, the great temple that was in Corinth, had associated with it approximately a thousand male and female prostitutes. And the same was also true in Rome. And and most of the areas of of the Gentile world, idolatry was associated with sexual immorality. Sexual promiscuity was part of the worship of that false god, whoever they were bowing to and giving their allegiance to. And so Paul is using an example that was very common in the society of his day. And by the way, it's still common in other parts of the world when you travel in different portions of the world. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, he refers to it. He says, they, referring to the Gentiles, have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so in this first example, when he's talking about lust of the heart, the specific example is sexual immorality, normally expressed in a, a heterosexual manner. Now, maybe this morning you say, well, that's nice, but that doesn't really apply to me. Maybe it does. Maybe for you, uh, it might be something that's expressed in pornography or some other kind of sexual sin, but maybe it's not. But remember that we just pointed out that idolatry is the human heart, that with idolatry, the human heart loves to make a good thing into what? God thing. So so Paul uses the example of sexual immorality, the lust of the heart expressing itself in sexual immorality, but it could just as easy, he could have said, um, your career, your children, money, pleasure, recreation, um, entertainment, your reputation, your comfort, he could have put any number of things here. Your, your, ooh, your children. And the truth would have been the same. These true are lust of the heart. He could have thrown in alcohol or substances. Things that we turn to that in and of themselves may be good, but we make them into gods that we worship. And you take any of those examples. Take your career, right? It's a good thing. 
But when you begin to invest it with godness and you worship your career and you rely upon your career to give you a sense of identity and significance, what ends up happening? You work hard and then you end up getting success. Maybe you get promotions and then what do you do? You work even harder and then you work harder and before you know it, you're a slave to that corporation. Or money, same thing. You, you look to money to give you safety and security in, the, in dangerous times, and so you pursue it, and you work for it, and you hoard it, and you chase after it. But what ends up happening is you become a, a slave to money. Or we turn to a substance, uh, alcohol, or drugs, or, or food, or any number of things, in order to deal with the stress of life, to have a sense of control, and that good thing ends up becoming a God thing. And we are very quickly idolaters. And the lust of our hearts has led us into slavery. So God is revealing his wrath to us by giving us over to the lusts of our hearts. However it may express itself in our lives. And it leads to slavery. A second phrase Begins in verse 26. It's dishonorable passions leading to unnatural sex. In verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We come to a section of Romans that is highly controversial, and it can be very painful, even for people in our own church. God's Word is saying in these verses what you think He's saying about homosexuality and lesbianism. Our Creator God completely contradicts our culture and the modern view of sexuality. In fact, He even contradicts traditional religion's view of sexuality. Traditional religion teaches that the purpose of sex is to procreate, to have children so that you can carry on the family line and have heirs and that type of thing. And while there's certainly you know, a benefit, that's one of the benefits of sex, that's not the ultimate purpose. So be assured that if God disagrees with the traditional religious view of sex, he most definitely disagrees with the message of our day that sex and our sexuality is all about self-expression and self-fulfillment and being who you were meant to be or being who you feel like you were meant to be, but are actually that person right now. Completely disagrees with this. Sex, church, is not given to us by God to serve as some form of self-expression. And it, it certainly was not meant to be the absolute statement of who we are meant to be before our Creator. 
To be clear, this passage repudiates this kind of thinking. It is the longest and the clearest statement in the Bible that homosexual and lesbian sex is unnatural and that it is an attack against God and His design within creation, a design that He calls very good. Really, to adequately understand what Paul is getting at here, I referred to it a few moments ago in the Garden of Eden with the, you know, the exchanges that take place. To really understand what Paul is getting at in this entire passage from verses 18 to 32, we've got to be familiar with Genesis 1 to 3. He's pulling from the creation account. And one of the first things that we read in chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, we read, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So ladies, in your femaleness you are a distinct image bearer of God. Men, in your maleness you are a distinct image image bearer of God. And God calls our maleness, and he calls our femaleness, and our distinct image bearing of our creator God very good. And then in chapter 2, he does something amazing. He takes that male and that female, and he brings them together into the covenant of marriage and he introduces them to each other, and he tells them to make love, to have sex, to become one flesh, to leave their father and mother. Yes, part of that is to populate the earth, to spread the image of God himself through procreation around the world, but there's more to it than this. This husband and wife are to become one flesh. This is so significant that Jesus in his ministry will say that anyone who wants to put this one flesh asunder should only do so under the most dire of circumstances. Paul helps us to understand the importance of sex and why it must be between a man and a woman and within the holy covenant of a marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, he begins to talk to men and women, husbands and wives, and how we are to relate to one another. And he very quickly gets beyond, you know, how to have a good marriage, and he ties it in to the deeper significance of what marriage is all about. And so then we read, as he brings this to a close, in verse 31, Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 2. And he quotes from it. He says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united in one. And notice what he says in verse 32. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul says that we must view our we must view sex, we must view our sexuality, marriage itself, not with the perspective of our culture, our modern day thinking. We must view it from the perspective of the gospel. 
We don't look at it through the lens of traditional religion. We look at it through the lens of the gospel. And so echoing Genesis, Paul teaches us that the gospel is teaching and telling us that God has created male and female to be equal and complementary to one another. And when these two distinct image bearers of God come together in marriage, a kind of oneness, a kind of wholeness and completeness occurs that points us to a significant gospel reality. It's pointing us to the gospel reality of the oneness and the wholeness and the completeness and the unity and the love that exists between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It's pointing us to the reality of the oneness of Jesus' bride, the church for whom he shed his blood and he died. It's pointing us to the reality of the promise that the day is coming when our God is going to restore and make all things new and we will be made one with our creator again and we will walk with him in the garden just as our parents did before sin ever entered into this world. This is what gospel marriages are to point to. And as Pastor Greg Johnson puts it, God made two genders, distinct genders, to illustrate the gospel within a marriage relationship, to illustrate what Jesus has done for us. I mean, think about it, church, within that marriage. There is to be complete nakedness and transparency and oneness with one another. And of course, this involves physical nakedness and sexual oneness, but it's referring to something more than that. It includes that, but there's more than that. It's also talking about emotional nakedness and oneness and relational transparency or nakedness and oneness, familial oneness economic and financial oneness, psychological oneness, and most importantly, spiritual nakedness and oneness. In this state, we can't hide from each other. It's to be a oneness where we can't mask our flaws, our sin, our brokenness, our wounds, our shame, our, our pain, And within this state, under the gaze of our spouse who sees us stripped bare of all of our excuses, sees us stripped bare, weak, and vulnerable, we find not rejection, not ridicule and scorn and shame in a gospel marriage, Strip bare in oneness with one another, we find acceptance and love and approval, even delight. And Paul is pointing out that 
this is important because in the act of love itself, in the physical act of love, and even through the normal events of life, it's two distinct image bearers of God becoming one, seeing each other as they are, not abandoning and forsaking one another. And this, God says, illustrates how he sees us and how he, through his, our Lord Jesus Christ, interacts with us. Because he sees us naked with all of our sins and our wounds and our flaws and our brokenness. And he does not reject us. He does not ridicule us. He does not heap shame upon us. What does he do? He accepts us and receives us, loves us. He delights in us. And our husband Jesus says, I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. Never turn my back on you. You're my bride. Do you see now why God speaks so strongly against all sex that takes place outside of the sacred covenant of marriage? All sex outside of the sacred covenant of marriage. And in these verses, why homosexual and lesbian sex is so egregious because it is an attack against the very design of creation that God has declared to be very good. A design that is, gives us a taste of who God is a design that is meant to help us see the depth of our relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A design that is meant to show us what we have to look forward to for all eternity. And so any attack on that design is a blasphemous attack on God Himself. We're going to draw some applications from this in a moment. But we've got to move on. There's lustful... How, does his, how is his wrath revealed? Lustful hearts leading to slavery. Dishonorable passions that lead to unnatural sex. And in a final way that God has given us up and in doing so reveals his wrath to us. It's debased thinking that leads to destructive antisocial behavior. In verses 28 to 32, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, even throws in disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Then verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. A final way that God's wrath is being revealed is in the disintegration of society itself. The way, think of it like this. Once, 
the vertical relationship with the Creator is broken and someone is committed to idolatry, the, the, it be, it's inevitable that the horizontal relationships are going to be devastated in one way or another. And the more that happens within a society, and God gives that society up to itself, and he simply just, just removes the common restraining grace that is in place against the natural inclinations of the human heart, just removes that restraining grace and our desire to sin the consequences are devastating within a society. And you see all kinds of behavior and the rise of violence and bloodshed and the disintegration of the family unit and so many of the things that we see even today in our society echo Romans 1. But to me, frankly, it's the second half of verse 32 It is the most chilling example of what happens when God reveals His wrath and He gives us what we want. It says they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In other words, humanity's thinking becomes so corrupted, so depraved and debased that evil is called good, and what is good is called evil. And if that isn't where we are today, I don't know a better descriptive phrase. How my heart breaks when I see legislatures in cities and in states around our country standing and applauding, calling it good, that in order to protect a woman's right to choose, a baby can now be murdered after it's been removed from the birth canal. That's good in the eyes of humanity today. God help us when as a country we call something that is so horrifically evil good. And when you stand against it and you stand for good, you're called evil. God help us. So let me close our time together with some gospel applications. In light of, I mean, this is a heavy passage. Right? It's a hot, heavy passage. And the first, maybe of all the applications, the first one we need to really take home, as we consider the wrath of God, the wrath of God is meant to drive us to the grace of God found in the gospel. Have you ever wondered why Paul starts in this passage dealing with idolatry, with sexual immorality, and then homosexuality and lesbian. I mean, he's writing to the church in Rome. It's highly doubtful that these are major problems in this church. So why does he start there? You know, it's easy for us in here to look at those things and go, yeah, that's right. That's why those other sins in verses 28 to 32 are so important. <laughs> Because at the end of the day, guess what? Every one of us in this room, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 1. 
Every one of us, whether it's sexual or it's disobedience or it's arrogance or it's envy or it's sloth or it's gossip or it's foolishness or it's deceitfulness or whatever, we all find ourselves in these passages. So it's almost like Paul is setting us up to feel pretty good about ourselves and then, uh oh. <laughs> Because apart from the gospel church, every one of us are under the wrath of God. But the wrath of God is meant to make us go, no, is there another alternative? And there is. The alternative is the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news. And if you're here this morning, and you're running from God, and you're rebelling from God, and you're living a life where you're, you're living according to idols and for pursuing the idols of this world, God's wrath is meant to drive you to Jesus, to worship Him. A second application, the question for every one of us, every one of us, believer or unbeliever, the question for us to ask ourselves is not, am I an idolater? But what are my idols competing for my heart's affection and worship? The assumption of Scripture is that every one of us are idolaters. We all have something, and more than one thing. And it may be a good thing, but we make them into God things. So what are my idols? My prayer for all of us is that we live in the spirit that we turn to our Lord and we begin to pray and we begin to ask him to open our eyes to those things that we are worshiping in place of him. Third application. Through the gospel, God gives us the power to steward our sexuality in a way that honors our Lord. Uh, let, you know, the verses that we've looked at this morning no doubt for some, maybe it made you uncomfortable. Let me encourage you for a minute that if you interact with God's truth and you're never made uncomfortable, you're probably worshiping a God that you've created in your own image. You know, God's so much higher than us that if his truth does not make us uncomfortable, at least from time to time, we are, we are in serious idolatry. Okay? And so I recognize that for at least some of us this morning, these verses may make us uncomfortable. So let me just make some application here for a few moments. For those of us who are heterosexual, married or unmarried, any sexual difficulties and struggles that you're having, they find their cure in the gospel lived out in authentic biblical community with other believers. Your sexual struggles can take any type of form. Whether you're married or unmarried, whatever the form of sexual struggle that you're having, that sexual struggle does not have to define you, number one. And number two, the resource that you've been given by our Lord to steward your sexuality is the Holy Spirit within you applying the gospel as you're in biblical community with other believers. Now for others of us here this morning, your, your struggle may be same-sex attraction. And through my years of ministry, 
I've interacted with believers who have been married for sometimes decades who have struggled with same-sex attraction. That's one end of the continuum. The other end of the continuum will be teenagers who have gone through puberty and adolescence, and there's confusion there, and everything in between. Listen, there's all kinds of reasons why you may be struggling with same-sex attraction, and we don't have time this morning to go into what those reasons may be, but here's what I want you to hear. If that describes you this morning, I want you to know that your church loves you. This church loves you. I love you. And the last thing, the worst thing, that I want you to do is to face that desire in secrecy and then turn to our culture for assistance in dealing with that desire because you will not find God's power in our culture to help you steward your sexuality so that you can deal with that desire in a way that will bring honor to the Lord. And so I want to encourage you. You may be a married man with children, but if this is in your life, come out of the shadows. Teenagers, if this is you, my heart breaks for you. You are so inundated today. You're so inundated. The peer pressure upon you is that if you don't in some way choose an alternative lifestyle, you're just not hip. You're not in it. There's something wrong with you. And this is the perversity of our generation. I just want you to know that if you're struggling with this, come and talk with us. Come and talk to Scott or Martinique or your small group leader or myself. We are a safe place for you to begin to deal with these thoughts, this, these desires. We will walk with you in this journey. We'll bring your parents into it when, when you feel safe. And parents, you have to give us the latitude. If they're not talking to you, be thankful if they talk to us. Okay? And in the appropriate time, our promise is that we'll bring you in as your child feels safe to do so. But children, don't sit in silence struggling if these desires are there. Let us help you see how Jesus will give you the power that you need to steward your sexuality, whether it's heterosexual or it's some kind of same-sex attractive desire that you are currently experiencing. The answer is the gospel, walking with other believers in biblical community. Finally, our calling church is to bring gospel restoration to our hurting world. Our calling is not to pronounce wrath to people who are in need. You see the difference there? Our calling is to bring gospel restoration. It's to bring the love and the message of Jesus Christ. That does mean bringing the truth of God's Word, but it's bringing it with grace, not wrath. Jesus Christ was filled with grace and truth. And so as a church, our desire 
is to be characterized by grace and truth, not truth and wrath. Father, help us to be that kind of church on mission for you, bringing gospel restoration with your grace, with your power, with truth, pointing men and women everywhere to Jesus. And Lord, I pray for these people who are here. I pray for our young people who have so many pressures put upon them today. I ask God that you would preserve and protect them in their sexuality. Lord, that you would keep them pure, that you would help them to see the importance of saving themselves for the covenant of marriage. And Lord, that if they are, are currently struggling in these areas, that they would come and we can address these things in their lives so that they can be reconciled and pure before you. Lord, those who may be here uh, married uh, and struggling, Lord, I ask that you would help all of us to steward our sexuality in a way that brings honor to you. And God, make us a church that is so filled with grace and love for one another that, that no matter what a person is struggling with, heterosexual, same-sex desires, whatever it may be, that there is an intuitive sense of safety that they can step forward, they can be honest and transparent with us in this church. And they don't have to be afraid of being condemned, shamed, judged, and unloved. Make us a church that loves them the way you have loved us and all of our flaws and sin and struggles and shame. I ask these things for your glory and for our good, Lord Jesus. Amen.